Welcome to True Grit and Grace, a podcast designed to empower you to claim your resilience and thrive through life's challenges. I am Amberly Lago, a mindset coach, fitness expert, and best-selling author. Each week, I'll dive deep with the world's brightest thought leaders and elite performers to share tangible tools and practical advice to inspire you to keep your eyes on the prize and forge ahead. So get ready to conquer your fears, heal any trauma, lead with your heart, and elevate your life with grit and grace. Hey, thank you all for tuning in. Today on the show, I mean, I have someone who's so inspiring. The first time we talked, he had me in tears of just gratitude and all that he has overcome. He's really the definition of resilience and triumph over tragedy. I have Sean V. Bradley here. I'm going to try to get through this interview and not cry, but what all he shares and all he does is so amazing. I mean, he went from an ex-gang member, um, ex-felon to having it all. He's got a beautiful wife and family, beautiful children. He is the CEO of dealer synergy. He even has it tattooed on his arm. Y'all he, he is, oh my gosh, if you're seeing this, or if you're listening, you got to check this out on YouTube because the tattoo is amazing. He's inspired me. We were talking before we hit record to get a tattoo of true grit and grace, but he works, he's got a huge platform through Lightspeed. Anybody that works with Lightspeed is like, you know, they're the real deal. They're legit. Um, he has got a new, well, he's the star of a Vice TV's hit show. I was a teenage felon. He's got, he's the host of Against All Odds radio show. And y'all, I could go on and on and on about his book. He's an incredible speaker, not an average speaker. He's an award-winning speaker that speaks globally. Thank you so much, Sean, for being here. Y'all check him out too on Instagram. Just go to Sean V. Bradley and check out what he's doing such an honor to have you here. Thanks for joining us on the show. Um, welcome to the show. Listen, it is an honor to be on the show. And I got to just really appreciate you taking the time and the interest. I got to be very honest with you. As you're going through all that stuff, it's a little embarrassing. It's like on and on and on. But I'm just a regular person, man. You know, I, I definitely have a unique come up story. But uh, we are all just people the way I, I, I look things, honestly. Well, we're all just people doing the best that we can, but you have really overcome so much. And I'm just so grateful. I have to give a shout out to Mike Zeller, who's amazing and introduced us. And you know what? I have to say when he first introduced us, I went and checked you out and I'm like, this guy's like into cars. He's like a leader, like the top leader in, in, in cars and selling cars. Like what? And then I heard your story and I was like, whoa. And of course it, it really hit home because we talked about how I have a brother who sits yes. on death row in Texas. And so, um, I would, could you share a little bit about your days of, of growing up? Because I want people to know that are, they're struggling. They might be going through a hard time that they too can rise up from their darkest days and overcome you know, the shame of maybe some of the things that they've done in the past and rise up. So take us back to, I mean, you were in a gang where you grew up and where you ended up and how you got here. 
Yes. Okay. So this is going to be a kind of surreal story, but it's, it's real folks. I grew up in Queens in Brooklyn in New York. Um, I'm 45 right now. So do the math. And I grew up in a very unique type situation. My father um, was abusive to my mother and he was never there as like a deadbeat dad. But my stepfather was way worse. He was an ex-Marine that used to used to torture me and my mother, used to make us do a lot of these physical exercises, like like have our, like standing like uh, like like we were arrested for hours or, or squatting with our palms up for hours. A lot of he would have you stand there and do that. And your mom, too. Oh, that's nothing, uh, girl. He uh, he used to shoot my mother up with heroin and chain her to the bed so she wasn't able to leave the bed. He used to beat me with Tonka trucks, like metal Tonka trucks when I was a little kid. And, um, you know, he threatened to uh, kill me and throw me off of a bridge. And how we got out of the situation is the NYPD has, it's not called SWAT, it's called Emergency Services Unit, it's called ESU. Not SWB, but ESU, which is Emergency Service Unit, which is like SWAT. They had to do a tactical extraction out of the house. Oh and then God. me and my mom were on the run yeah, for, for many years. So I grew up like that. Oh. Uh, my mom had a lot of um, mental, emotional uh, luggage. She also gave up on men. So when I was uh, six years old... She got a girlfriend. So that's kind of hard also growing up in New York with a, a mom that's got a girlfriend. You know, mm -hmm. it was especially back then, it wasn't as socially accepted as it is yeah. now. I was just very disturbed and, and broken as a kid. Uh, I, I, everybody hated me because I was always miserable and acting out. Um, I got involved in a lot of crazy stuff as a kid. When I was 12 to 15 years old, I was put into a boy's home. My mother didn't want me, so she put me in a boy's home. So for three years, it was in a juvenile facility, and it was like crazy. You know, you're learning from older kids, and it was like a, an incubation camp for criminality. You know, I learned mm -hmm. so much from there. I was selling, you know, drugs as a kid, but not crazy yet. But when I came home from um, the, the juvenile facility at 15 years old, I got more involved in selling drugs and, you know, getting involved in like the skateboard and the raving scene, like the underground nightclub techno scene. And how old um, were you? You were 15? 15, 16. Yes. That's I, I, just I crazy to me because I look at my daughter, well, my oldest daughter's, um, you know, 26. My youngest daughter is 13. To, so to look at her and think about what you were doing is just mind blowing when you needed so much love and support and didn't have that 15 years old already yeah. doing underground stuff. I oh no, like I don't want to go back into this right here for this part, but I was hustling at six and seven years old on the streets of New York, like robbing, stealing and stuff like that. I just skipped that part just to get into, you know, cause we'll, we'll be here for three hours. Yeah. So back when I was 15 years old, I was starting to sell drugs and stuff like that. When I was 16, I got deep into the rave scene and I was doing about a hundred pills of E. So I was making at 16, 17 years old, like $3,000 in, in a couple hours at a rave party. Wow. Uh, things, got, things got a little bit crazy. Uh, in my senior year, I had joined the army. I, I had to get a uh, special permission for my mom at 17 years old. And I enlisted in the United States Army, 82nd Airborne. You know, I had my ship date through MEPS, which is the military entrance posture station. But in my senior year of high school, 
I was skating in an abandoned warehouse with a bunch of my friends. We had a bonfire going, we were drinking, and one of the uh, genius people I was with uh, knocked over the bonfire and burnt the warehouse down. Nobody got hurt, it was abandoned, thank God, but it's not like on TV. In 1994, when I graduated high school, many moons ago, um, there wasn't a thing where you had a choice to either go to prison or go to the military. The military, basically, it was point blank. If you had any pending cases, the military wouldn't accept you. So we were trying to, with my attorney, like to talk to the judge and, and say, look, can you please drop the charges so we could go in? And they, at first, were doing it as a conditional. The military dropped me because mm-hmm. I can't have any conditions. Good news is that the case got dismissed from, from the state, but not in time. So I lost my ship date. So now I'm homeless. So I, it wasn't bad. I, I was living with a girlfriend at the time. So it wasn't like I was on the street, but I didn't have any plans. My, like I, I planned to go to the army and, and, and go into basic training and that. So now I have no uh, nowhere to go, no money, legal at least. And so I applied to two universities, Ryder University in New Jersey and Rutgers New- University. I got into both, but I wound wow. up going to Ryder. And so I, I got um, grants, student loans, and a bunch of stuff like that. And it's at 18 years old, I turned 18 in August. So I graduated when I was 17. At 18 years old, I get deeper involved in the New York club scene. It's very serious. I used to work for, and this is where it's gonna, that your audience is gonna be like, what? Yeah, I used to work at 18 years old at the largest nightclubs in the world in New York City, and actually I used to promote for uh, cross promote for for events in London. Um, so when you were working at these events, mm-hmm. and you were only 18, did they did mm-hmm. were you saying that you were 21, or how did you how yeah. did you? Now nah, that's because of my my connections and resources. So yes, oh. most people are not allowed to go into the club until 21. I was running VIP parties for celebrities, models, and importing ecstasy at 18 years old. It was at, at the time. So, were you taking any drugs, or were you mostly? Oh God, yeah, I was, yeah, no, I was. I was. I was fully immersed in the rave culture. I don't know if you know what the rave culture is. It's the underground techno parties. So it, I, I've I never been to a rave. Can you believe that? I've never been. I've only well, heard can, about it. Yeah, no, raves are like the the 90s version, I think, of the hippies. So instead of the Grateful Dead and Acid, like sex, drugs, rock and roll, it was sex, drugs, techno when I grew up in the 90s. But it got serious at that time when when I was in my senior year going into college. I was selling bulletproof vests to crack dealers in Queens. I was uh, doing clone cell phones, uh, counterfeit money, all sorts of stuff. So here's where the story gets crazy. I am 18 years old and uh, yeah, the story's not crazy yet. I'm 18 years old and I get arrested by the United States Secret Service for counterfeit money. So again, I get arrested by the United States Secret Service for counterfeit money. The special agent from the Secret Service, I remember his name is Anthony Sparra, real. He pulls me in like when he he gets to me because it goes from from the, the Woodbridge police to him. He tries to flip me. Now the way that this works is that back then there's two classifications if you're a a confidential informant versus a cooperating witness people don't understand the difference a cooperating witness is somebody that got arrested and flips meaning that they're going to testify on somebody else to get their time down that's one classification separate from that is what's called an undercover confidential informant a confidential informant is usually somebody that's paid, like an undercover operative that's paid to be able to, to there's people that people might not even realize that that's what their job is. Like they, like you have general contract agents, 1099 agents. Well, they have undercover informants 
for federal agencies. And why is because there's something called the United States Forfeiture Act. Back in 1995, when I got arrested by the Secret Service, not only you know would I be able to get the cases dismissed or what have you, not only would they pay me money, right? They bribe mm-hmm. me with a ton of money. They whatever they seize from nightclub wise, I'm entitled to 25 percent of of said forfeiture up to a quarter million dollars. So let me explain and put this in perspective in today's wow. day and age. I don't know what the is, but let's just say that I, you know I talk to the FBI and I say that Amberly is doing some illegal stuff at her you know her warehouse, her business for cookies, right? She's got extra special ingredients in her cookies. They raid your warehouse, and let's say your warehouse is worth two million dollars. Well, guess what? My reward for that information is twenty five percent of that forfeiture capped at a quarter million dollars. Back then, wow, crazy, right? Wow. So now I'm an eight-year-old kid and I'm at Ryder University. I'm a Russian major. I speak Russian. I'm not Russian, but for the United States military. And I was in you the United States Army. You speak Russian too? Yes. I studied Russian for okay. you to read and write Russian. You're a little bit scary, man. You're like, so, you're a genius. Okay. Carry no, on. I'm like, no, what? No, 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 no. <laughs> so, but I want to kind of frame this so people understand is when I, I didn't, the next part of the story is really crazy and, but it didn't come out of nowhere for, I remember I was, I was trying to listen to the military. I couldn't because I got, I got in trouble, but I got out of it. I then went to college and then joined the ROTC, which is the reserve officer training corps, which is crazy. I couldn't be a private, but I could be a freaking officer in the army. It's just nuts the way the rules work. So I'm in secret service custody. Long story short, I was getting counterfeit money from some serious people in in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, Italians. We'll leave it at that, right? And so they wanted me to flip on these Italians from Bensonhurst, and I'm not stupid. I want to keep breathing. And plus, I have... But I also have a certain code, and it's not what you guys might think it is, but I will never flip on people that I'm part of my crew or that I'm doing business with or that, that, that that I wouldn't do anything like that on a street level. You know what I mean? But... Again, my mentality back then at 18 years old was I didn't care about other people. You know what I mean? I'm not proud of that now, but like I didn't, if I, if you weren't part of my crew, we weren't making money together, we weren't on the same team, I didn't care what happened to you. So I'll be specific. Let's just say you were one of my brothers in, in my organization and you did something and you're locked up. Back then, I would have no problem reaching out to a DT and saying, listen, I need to get my, my, my brother out of, of prison why would I do that? I got some information for you. I didn't care. You know what I mean? Like I had no loyalty to anybody except for me and my crew, that type mm-hmm. of stuff. So anyway, mm-hmm. from, and this is a Machiavellian strategy, from United States Secret Service custody, I told the Secret Service I couldn't help them. I called the DEA on my own. I called the DEA on my own and I asked for the special agent in charge in New York City. And I basically said, look, I'm sitting here in Secret Service custody. I can't help them on this BS case, but we need to talk because I, w- I had a lot of information from these nightclubs. And at that time, it was kind of crazy that um, the, the DEA was trying to penetrate these nightclubs because these were the largest nightclubs in the world, in the world, but they couldn't get in. And I used to run the VIP parties. So long story short, uh, the DEA recruited me. Remember, I never got arrested by the DEA. The re- DEA recruited me as an undercover paid confidential informant. So I worked 13 months undercover for the United States you know, DEA. Wow. Training. I didn't know that part of your story. Yeah. I, I don't, I didn't, I wasn't going to talk about it until now, but I, yeah, so that's part of it. And so, but there's verifications on this stuff. So I worked for 13 months as an undercover informant for the DEA trained in surveillance, counter surveillance, all sorts of stuff. I, I, I was, I worked deep 
with them. But your first question before about did I do drugs, at that time, I was young, stupid, and out of control. And some of the activities that the DEA did were unlegal and unethical. And so I figured if these people, the federal government, they're doing some illegal, unethical things, man, Amberly, I was doing crazy stuff. I was ripping off the DEA and they didn't even know it. So I would do what's called control buys, okay? And what that means is I would basically, you know, tell them that I needed to buy a thousand pills of ecstasy. They would give me $10,000 cash of buy money. I would really get it for $5 a pill. So it's only five grand. So I would tape five grand in my lower back of the money that I robbed. So I was like a double agent. I was still a criminal doing all my stuff and then some, but now I had the resources and I had the skills that I learned from the DEA. It was just crazy. That is unbelievable. Wow, that you got to that position. No, it, it gets even crazier. The case became, it got huge. It became the largest case in United States history for nightclubs and ecstasy. And so Mayor Giuliani got involved in the case because there was NYPD corruption. There was a, a major murder that was tied to the case. So there was, let me explain. I wasn't involved in the murder in any way, shape, or form. There was two cases. There's a federal case on the money and the racketeering side, right? The business. Then there was a state case for a murder. And you probably don't even realize, but you know what this is, what I'm about to say. There was a guy named Michael Alleg, who was a very famous club kid in the early 90s. He was on all the talk shows and stuff like that. He chopped up and killed another club kid. He wasn't gangster. He was actually um, a a homosexual club kid. You know, he was, he was very soft and, and weird looking platform shoes, but he was in a drug induced thing. He killed his drug dealer slash friend and chopped him up in the river, in the Hudson River. Macaulay, oh Culkin, played him. Macaulay Culkin played him in a movie called Party Monster. It was actually Macaulay Culkin's last big movie before he disappeared into obscurity. So in, I think 2003, Macaulay Culkin had this big movie with a whole bunch of people. It was an all-star cast. So he, Macaulay Culkin played him. So that guy had his separate state murder case, but he was also in my federal case, you know, in, wow. in the racketeering case. So this thing got blown up. Long story short, basically what the DEA was paying me for was to be a high level drug dealer promoter and infiltrate them. I took the DEA agents to world famous boutiques in Fifth Avenue, New York City and dressed them. I dressed them, some of them in drag, some of them in club clothes, and I put them on my VIP list and got them into the clubs. Wow. And then it was, it was very tactical, strategic, serious stuff. So during this time, it's totally separate from this. Some girl called me and said she wanted to buy some drugs for me, ecstasy. So I went, but now I'm trained to, to point out surveillance and counter surveillance teams and stuff like that. So I knew, this is a true story, I knew that this was a setup, but totally random. And I basically said to them, you know, uh, look, you're obviously an undercover cop. I don't have anything, you're crazy. And I thought I was good because I didn't sell them anything. My girlfriend at the time was really not smart. They ran up on her because I, I thought I was fine. And they said, you know, give me the drugs. And they, she just reached out of her pants and gave them to him. So we get arrested, but they didn't have anything on me, right? So, but I wasn't gonna let her go to jail. So I said they were mine. We wound up going to jail. The DEA, instead of coming and, and taking me out and, and, and just making that go away as they should have, because I was working for them, they basically wanted to change my status from confidential informant to cooperating witness. And so it's just a strategic thing on them. I didn't play it. No, no. So I'm in federal custody now and they think that they're going to put me on ice. I bailed out. They didn't, th they didn't think that I was going to bail out. I bailed out. 
they picked me up again, uh, you know, about a couple of weeks later. And how Max, old were you at this time when they picked you up? Like 19? 19, 19 years old, 19 years old. And then they were basically wanting to flip me into the cooperating witness. I pulled the second Machiavellian strategy in my life. I said, no way. I didn't trust them. So I went to the owner of these major nightclubs. Remember, he's got a federal case with, with 47 co-defendants. The feds have got a 97% conviction rate. His attorney is Ben Brofman. If you don't know who that is, Google him. Ben Brofman is Puffy's lawyer, Michael Jackson's lawyer, Strauss oh, Kahn wow. from France's lawyer. One of the most powerful lawyers in the world. So I, I reached out to Ben. I said, listen, Ben, I'm the one that developed the entire case. You know, um, I need, I, I, I could help Peter beat the case. I don't want any money. I just want him to get me the best attorney. So Peter Gation, the target, hired Lee Ginsburg. Lee Ginsburg, if you Google him, is another super attorney. He's one of the most powerful federal death penalty attorneys in the world. It's my attorney. Man, the United States government, folks, listening to this podcast, you got to understand, first of all, my paperwork didn't say the state of New Jersey versus Sean Bradley. My paperwork is intimidating. It said the United States of America versus Sean Bradley. Can you imagine being a 19-year-old kid? Secret the Service United States of America, America versus? versus Sean, Sean Bradley. And now they're pissed because I've defected because I didn't trust them anymore. That And I went to their, after they spent millions and millions of dollars on this case, and now I'm on the opposition. So they threatened me. They threatened my attorney, who's a very powerful man, to bring the world down. I was facing 20 years, like straight in the feds. They were going to bring back the Secret Service case, all this stuff. But we stood our ground and I wound up, I got some funny stories about prison too. So, but I'll get to that. I wound up pleading guilty to four different cases. I have a, the counterfeit charge was a year because I violated probation on that. Because they gave me a year when I was working for the DEA probation. But when the DEA arrested me, they violated me. So I have a year there. They gave me two years. And here's the kicker, okay? I never got arrested by the DEA. I, I, you know what I mean? Like they used the information I gave them to get hired by them to, to, to arrest me. I had to plead guilty to 2,000 pills of ecstasy, which is the equivalent of 45 kilos of marijuana. And so here's the crazy part. There's two crazy parts that our audience knows. One is that I never, I never got arrested by the DEA, but they arrested me because they wanted to change my status for them. So they could do that. The government could do whatever they want. And second is at that time, there was no schedule in the federal guidelines for ecstasy. So what the United States government could do is what's called an equivalency chart. So even though I never got arrested for marijuana, they charged me with 45 kilos of marijuana as an equivalency chart to the 2,000 pills of ecstasy, which they never have possession of. It's just from what I had said to them, which is insane. And they gave me one charge of giving false information to a federal agent because that protected them from nobody being able to call me as a witness for the defense or offense on there. So my charges were, you know, 2,000 pills of ecstasy and making, you know, false statements to a federal agent, whatever. So I got two years for that. I had a state case that I got four years on, and then I got a state case for three years. Thank God my I have a state and federal, I have a team of attorneys. They were able to run everything concurrent except for the federal one year. So I could have gotten out in two years from the four year, the three year, and the two years because state case, you only have to do like a small portion of your time. But after I did my two straight years, 
you know, there, I had to do one year concurrent for, I mean, consecutive for the violation. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you know what? My husband's going to love listening to this. He was undercover. Maybe I shouldn't even say this. He retired, but he's Lieutenant commander with the CHP. But before that he was undercover drugs. So he's going to totally understand and know who all oh, you're I'm talking about. Exactly right here. Yeah. He will totally yeah, get that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but so oh, you so, did like a total of what six years? Was it six years? No, no, no. Well, yes, but I did three years in a juvenile facility. Okay, oh, okay. so from twelve to thirteen, I was in a, in, a, in a juvenile facility. Okay, but I did three years straight from twelve to fifteen, and then from nineteen to twenty-two, I did three years in federal, mostly federal, but then also in state prison. So, so a lot of years of your life from abuse to some craziness to being locked up and it's also confusing so i want to just touch on two things here the case was so huge there's a major movie that i'm in called limelight so the director of that of that huge show cocaine cowboys which is on netflix right now his name's billy corbin he's a famous director in 2011 there was a huge movie called limelight that was in the movie theaters on hbo and it's it's a real movie i didn't give any of any authorized information or whatever. So they used none of my stuff. I refuse to be part of that. But I'm in a major part of this huge movie called Limelight. There's two books, one book called Clubland Confidential from Frank Owen, and then one called Chemical Cowboy by the DE agent. So because this sounds sensational. And if I was listening to this, I'd be like, man, there's no way that's got to be exaggerated. No, there's a movie and two books on this whole case. And it talks about me, my real name and undercover stuff and all that stuff. And if they say your real name, Yes, of course, which is crazy because the DEA was pissed. So they released all the information and everything. Oh my so, gosh, I did not yeah, know that. Yeah. So like, and, and here's the even kicker, the movie, right? The movie was done in 2011, but it was from back from 1996. Since there was no video footage like it is now, there was no like YouTube and stuff like them. They use footage of me with my orange tie and my orange stuff as an adult in that movie. It's crazy, Amberly, crazy. So oh. now let me... Before we transition, in prison, I was deeply involved in gang stuff. I was liaison between the Italian organized crime and Russian organized crime in there. I was. Is that very where you broke. learned to speak Russian? Was in prison? No, it, it's funny. No, I was a Russian major at Rider University, but that's where I learned it, how to perfect Russian and I got better at it was in prison. Absolutely. Because I only had a year and a half of Russian, um, you know, language and Russian lit, you know, which is a level 300 course at the university. So, yes, I practiced, and this is funny as hell, with the highest ranking Russian organized crime people to ever touch American soil, like Naponchuk Ivankov and Vladimir Taco. I became very, very good friends with them in federal prison in Brooklyn and in Allenwood Penitentiary. And fast forward for just a quick second, I actually, after I got out of prison, took six trips to Moscow with these people that I met in prison. It's a long story. All legitimate stuff, by the way. But anyway, when I was in prison- All legit. All legit in Russia. Legit was in Russia. Even though these people were gangsters and stuff like that. It's funny. And this is interesting. People say, what changed your life? One of the people that, that really changed me from my crazy path from like illegal stuff and, and, and criminal stuff and gang stuff was the guy from the Russian mafia. Uh, his name is Vladimir Taco. This guy was 34 when I met him in, in prison and I was 19 and he had uh, you know two PhDs. He served under two Soviet presidents 
and he's a car carrying member of the Communist Party. Like, like, where would I ever meet somebody like that? And what he had said to me, he, you know, I'll never forget. He said, "What are you doing here? You're only 19 years old, you know. And you know, if you are able to be here, my God, why aren't you looking at at doing, you know, things?" And and I didn't. People don't understand when you grow up in Brooklyn and Queens like that, or like Compton. It's a different world. It is. It is. It is completely different than what most Americans or most people would ever fathom. I had no, no even um, mindset. No, well, I could you didn't even... have any great role models that told you you could do more or be the best version of yourself. But I wanted to go back to when you got. You, so you're you find out you're going to be locked up. How did it feel at that young of an age being locked up? Were you scared? Were you, I mean, what was in, the in, feeling? In Were you depressed? Were you like, I don't, all of it, you all angry of it, all or of, all of the above? All of it, but for different reasons. Okay. So I was scared, but not because I'm worried about somebody like, you know, uh, abusing me or something like that in jail. It's, I, I just, I didn't know when I first got arrested how much time I was looking at. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm worried about that. I don't, there, I did work undercover. So again, you know, there's certain people that don't care that I didn't flip on my people or whatever. Like it was, it didn't matter. Some people have the ethics that if you flip a rat as a rat or whatever, I, I don't feel like I'm a rat at all. I'm never ratting any of my people again, but again, so I didn't know what was going to happen. So I, I had those type of thoughts. I was pissed. I was angry because, you know, the, the DE agents did illegal and unethical things, but I'm the only one that's locked up from, from that team. I'm pissed because I dedicated my life to this case or whatever. And don't get me wrong. Like, you know, I was also young and stupid and selfish. Like I should have been, you know, arrested for something. You know what I mean? Maybe on that one charge that I wound up doing all this time for, I didn't deserve some of that or all of that. But my God, I'm lucky in retrospect that I only did three years and, you know, in, in prison and three years in a state facility for, I mean, for juvenile for when I was a kid. So, yeah. Well, fear, I think anger, you're lucky that you didn't end up getting in a position where somebody got killed because of you. Or, you know what I mean? Because oh. in my, what I have seen, uh, like my brother, it ended up leading him down a really, really dark path where unfortunately someone was killed. And I mean, yeah, I think that you are lucky that you didn't have more time and it sounds like it changed your life. You met the people that you were supposed to meet that made you, Not that shifted your mindset, opened your mind up to new possibilities. Did you, I mean, and it sounds like you had time to, to perfect your, your Russian for sure. Um, what did you do? Were you able to start shifting your mindset in prison, start reading books, start working out? Like, how did you start to become a better person? It, it, you know, I'm embarrassed to say now, especially what I'm doing, is that those three years were completely wasted because I was not ready. You know, uh, even the people that I that I met, I met like uh, two or three extremely influential people that to this day are in my in my life that that their their lessons you know taught me on how to be the success that I am today. But when I was there, no, I'm embarrassed to say like I was just. I was crazy. I, I, I was trying to, I met people from the meddling cartel. I was looking at it like it was a, a connection. It was like the freaking, uh, uh, what do you call that? The uh, chamber of commerce of criminals. You know what I mean? Like I was getting a PhD in different hustles. So well, it's I, like you, I think, I feel like you learned, I mean, so much about success in business is connections and who you meet. It's relationships 
And I feel like at a young age, you already had that instilled in you about relationship building. It may not have been all the right relationships, but you knew that if you could work on building these relationships, it would take you far. So you're like, oh, I'm in a place I'm going to I'm going to start building some relationships with the mobsters in here. Yes, no, a hundred percent. So my folk, and I did read a lot. Like I've I've been in the hole before. You know, I did thirty days straight in the hole, and you know, I've read like yeah. five hundred page books in one day. You know, what I mean, like I I used to read a lot, but again, I wish Wait, I could go take, back. You go back. Well, you said you spent thirty days in the. Would you in say in the hole? Yeah, in, in in segregation for I got into a fight and I spent thirty days. I did more than that. Like I did like you know three days here, like a week here. But the most I did in one shot was thirty days in the hole, and that sucked. And so I I read the most when I was in the hole, and I would read five hundred page plus books in one day because you know in like fourteen hours straight, what else am I doing? I, I could read, but they yeah. were like like mind candy, like Tom Clancy, Piers Anthony, they were like fiction books or whatever. I'd never used it for business or success or mindset. I just completely escaped that. Like, so my whole prison stay was just on some gangster shit. It was just, wow, you know, really? how to, how to, yeah, I was running scams from prison. Amber, listen, oh my I was, gosh, making, that's crazy. I mean, <laughs> it, it's just crazy to me. I mean, and my brother has been in the hole or how you say it. Um, and he's actually enjoyed as hard as that is to say that reprieve from some of the horrible shit that goes on in prison. And unfortunately he's, he's there. We just tried, we just, I just talked to one of the lawyers when I was in Texas last time about an appeal, trying to get him off death row, but I'm just blown away. You did. When did you start to like get into self-development and business and stuff when you got out of prison? Yeah, absolutely. So when I came out of prison, I was working a food town because that was my job that I, that I got as soon as I got out. And I was happy for the first couple of days. But I, I, I lived with a friend of mine, a really close friend of mine who I'm still friends with today. He's actually on the TV show with me. His name's Billy. And Billy um, was, you know, he was a drug dealer and I moved into his, his one, his studio apartment. And it was very frustrating. I would work 40 hours at food town slinging ham and cheese and making like less than $200 in a week. And I come home and this guy's got a bowl of Cheerios like out of a movie and there's chicks all over the the house half naked and, and a pile of drugs there and I'm like so I went back to my criminal stuff temporarily so I went back to Brooklyn and I got a bunch of uh things to to flip and sell in, in uh you know like on, on no, the I was gonna like ask it, it must have been hard like is it hard to not go back to that it was, it wasn't for at first. Cause like, I mean, like after three straight years, remember I was only 22 years old. And so a big chunk of my life was just taken away in prison. And so I was, the euphoria lasted very temporarily. So after I started hustling again, I started making a lot of money. Not like I was before prison, but a lot more money than food town. I don't know what came over me. I don't, I don't want, I, I do have faith personally. I don't like talking about that stuff a lot because I don't want it to dilute the message, but I, I don't go to church every Sunday, but I do believe excuse me, in a God, but I don't know if it was God. I don't know if it was just intuition or if it was the universe, the laws of attraction, but something really um, internally said to me, you need to stop. So right when I was on fire, like meaning good, I was doing good, nothing happened. I just stopped 
and I moved out. And this is another part of crazy part of the story. I moved to Red Bank, New Jersey. Red Bank is beautiful. It's like, I try to explain, it's like New York City for one block. It's a small, small place where Geraldo Rivera lives, Navsink River, but it's gorgeous. And I tried to rent a couch for $500 a month. So all I had with my name was a backpack, a Walkman, and $1,000 cash. That's it. And I moved to Red Bank. And I answered an ad and it turned out it was a false ad. I, I wound up spending $500 a month renting a couch in, a, in an apartment, okay? So I didn't even have my own like room. I had a couch that I was renting $500. I got a job as a waiter and I sucked at it. I met my ex-wife who's now passed away. Um, she, that's another story we'll get into possibly if we have time. But um, I, I did that for about a year and then I sucked as a waiter. So my friend Billy, the drug dealer, he was in the car industry, he said to me that, look, you should really sell cars. And I, and I was offended, like the, the ex-convict, ex-gang member thought that car sales was like beneath me. You know what I mean? Because they're shady, I thought. I got into the industry and I just, I was like a fish to water. It was like, hustling on the street while well, I'm selling. How many you know, years ago was that now? Cause you've been doing this for a uh, long time. 1999, I got into the car industry in 1999. And the first month on the, on the showroom floor, I was salesman of the month, first year salesman of the year. I crushed it and I absorbed all of the training from, from the dealership stuff. And some of it was motivational, but from there, I self-taught. Most people don't know this, so I'm glad you asked that question. I taught myself everything from how to design websites, how to do search engine optimization, uh, how, you know, public speaking, professional well, development. Yeah, you know what though, but I have to say you're a go-getter. You, mm -hmm. you go after it. So it wasn't like you're, you're self-taught, but I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you're like, well, I want to be the best at this. So who do I go to? Well, I go to the National Speakers Association and I exactly. dive into that. So a lot of people want to do things, but they won't take that action step to go, actually go and do it. And, and it seems like you're not afraid to jump out of your comfort zone. You're like, what do I need to learn to get to the next level? And you're like, okay, I'm going to do that. So I really applaud you for, you don't know how to do a website, you figure it out. And that's through your whole message even during the bad times, even when it wasn't so much good stuff going on, you found a way. You always find a way through it. I feel like that's your default. Like, oh, this isn't working. Well, what's some other way I can figure it out? Man, you and Bradley must have some crazy fun stories to talk about car sales. Yeah. Yeah, Brad is an amazing guy. And let me share with you one of the, the things, thank God, I'm just surrounded by amazing people. One of the first books that I was given by a major, somebody that's worth like hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, his name's Sean Wolfington. Very powerful man, you know, he's going so many companies. He gave me the, the uh, you know, um, a book, The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. And then another gentleman gave me the book that I was gonna mention, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, a guy named Gabriel Kratchik from uh, Great the book. CEO in Orange. Yeah, and if you think about it, The Seven Habits, changed my entire life. The first habit is being proactive, which is the opposite of lethargic, which is what you're talking about, is that you know you can't just wait for shit to happen. You've got to proactively make things happen. But Amen. Oh my gosh. I mean, I can't stress that enough. It People, okay, I just have to say, I'm so glad you brought that up because a lot of times what happens is people wait. Like people 
if you're listening right now and you're thinking, well, I'm just going to wait for the pandemic to be over and things will go back to normal. It's not going to go back to normal. I don't think resilience is going back. I think it's about moving forward with courage and taking action and not waiting. It's jumping to the next thing like full force. And so I'm so glad you brought that up because a lot of people wait. They wait for, oh, I'm going to wait to be discovered by an agent. I'm going to wait for my book to be a bestseller. I'm going to wait until a publisher wants to you know, make my book a bestseller. It's like, no, you have to do that. You have to get out there and make it happen. So sorry, I'm so cheering no, no. you on for saying that. No, thank you. Here's what I believe with all my heart. And so I believe that the best ideas and the best inventions that nobody knows about are in the graveyard, meaning that that's where the best ideas and the best inventions are because most people have never executed or implemented. There's a book, I forgot who the author is, called Execution, because that is one of the biggest problems is from idea or concept to implementation. I think one of my superpowers has always been that I can execute in, in, in real time. I don't need a ramp up period. Like I'm able to take a situation, scenario, an idea and, and execute and implement it. And you had mentioned before, I have actually coined the phrase FITFO. You know, I believe in figuring it the fudge out, or you can use whatever F you want, but FITFO, is, that's been my motto on the street, in prison, on uh, like as a business owner, is, is to figure it the fudge out. And again, the seven habits has really helped me with everything from work-life balance, time maximization, communication. So from reading the book, then I went through the courses. Then I, after getting certified, then I became an actual trainer and facilitator. So we are the only official partner with Franklin Covey in the entire automotive industry. So we are certified to train and to facilitate the seven habits. Yeah. So, so it's, tell me the seven habits real quick. Um, Cause I, I have that book. I love that book for the listeners who are listening. Do you know the seven habits? Of right course off? I do. Inside out, yes. But I want to, I got to frame it like this. The whole purpose of the seven habits. So everybody doesn't understand. It's not the seven habits of highly rich people, not the seven habits of highly uh, successful people. It's the seven habits of highly effective people because effectiveness are the roots to everything else. Wealth, prosperity, happiness, et cetera, start with being effective. And so the, the first three habits are the private victory. What Covey says is that there is what's called the maturity continuum. There's three main mindsets. Codependent people, you make me feel wah, wah, wah. Independent people, it's all about me, me, me. And then the nirvana is interdependence. Synergy and, and interdependence are about collaboration and we. So the seven habits are like a roadmap. The first three habits are the private victory. They they teach people how to go from being codependent or dependent to independent. And that's gonna be, be proactive, begin with the end result in mind, and then put first things first. Also means be careful of distractions, guys, as opportunities. If you successful at those three habits, you will be in the independent category. And now what you got to work on is the public victory. How do you go from being independent, all about me, 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 I, 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 into about us and we is the next three habits. Think win-win, seek first to understand and then to be understood, and then synergize. Once you've done that, you will evolve to interdependence, which is the most powerful form of, of an organization or a mindset or reality. And then the last habit is sharpen the saw, because again, you can't be 
focused on just business and money and all that other stuff, but your relationships, your heart, your soul is not in the right place because again, it's like working out at the gym and your arms are like Popeye cock diesel, but you got chicken gumby legs. So if you don't do a holistic approach to, you know, to evolution, you're, you're going to be lopsided. Wow. I love it. So is that one of the reasons that your company is dealer synergy? Yeah, because I really believe that synergy is one of my favorite words. Synergy is defined as two or more agents that come together are greater than the individual effect. So what that means to me is peanut butter is good, jelly is good, but if you have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with some milk, you had a banging ass lunch. You know what I mean? So again, I love that. And you know what? I see that in everything that you do with the way that you collaborate with people. It's really beautiful. I mean, I'm so honored that I get to be on your show and I see the relationship you have with Brad Lee and I see the relationship you have with Mike Zeller and I see that how your business is just growing and growing and growing. And then I see the relationship you have with your beautiful wife and what y'all been married for 14 years, 14 and a half years. Yes. Yeah. And so sorry, I strike that. I'm just going to kill me. We've been together for 14 and a half years, technically married for 12 and a half years. Okay. Well, that's good because I actually had the date of when I got married engraved in my husband's. uh, Oh, that's so smart. Y'all, he's got it tattooed (laughs) on his wrist. I have to do that. I had my watch. Oh, and you have. Oh, that's awesome. It's right there. I'll never forget that's good you're a smart man but i love the way that you you know when we talk that you talk about business but you talk about your family for people that are listening and they're like wow well that's great he's just look at how successful he is how does he balance it all how do you find balance in your life with running this successful company, having this huge platform, doing your speaking, running your own events? Now you, and I want to talk about the show more, you know, you're an author, you've got this show, you have your radio show. How do you find time to balance it all? Do you believe in balance or do you believe more in alignment? How do you find that work-life balance? Great question. I, I want to frame this for your audience. So me and my wife, we own 11 companies in five different verticals. We've got four kids from 8, 13, 20, um, going to be 21 soon and 22. We have two pugs. And I'm on an airplane before COVID every uh, once a week. Now it's probably every other week I'm on an airplane keynoting events. I have a radio show. I'm the star of a, of a hit TV show. How do I do it all? Well, first, my wife is one of the most incredible human beings on this planet. She's not just the best wife. She's the best business partner. Aww. She is coincidentally a time maximization expert, which is hysterical. So between our training, that's what it is. Me and my wife, my partner in life and at home are strategically trained and on the same page on how to maximize everything. And one of the things is Covey's third habit, put first things first. This is what I try to, to oh, live my whole life is that, is that be careful of distractions, disguises, opportunities. Covey has a phrase, you follow your big rocks. And that, that there's a YouTube video, if you type in Franklin Covey, big rocks into YouTube, it'll make a lot of sense to your audience or to you. But what you wanna be able to do is understand that if I go in, whether it's daily, weekly, or monthly, and I focus on the most important things to do, 
and then fill in everything else. Those are little rocks. So that it's just the way that we engage life. So that's the first thing is that I got an amazing wife. Second, I am trained and my wife is trained in time maximization, not time management. A higher level time management is time maximization. And then I have a staff of people. I've got 20 plus employees that work for me like full time. And then I also have like general contract agents and vendors and, and consultants. And I have an amazing network. And then I your try- assistant is great, by the way. I love your assistant. She is on yes. top of it. That's that, that's exactly it is that I've created the, the resources and the culture that's going to be able to do this. I also have a little hack that uh, I do is I try to multiplicity the time. Let me explain. My oldest daughter, she's 22 years old. She I, she worked three years at a dealership. Now she's been working for me for a year. Her sister, my younger daughter, has now been working at a dealership for a year. She's being incubated. My nephew is being incubated. So I, I have my family involved in the company, you know what I mean, as well. So there's a lot of things that I'm able to do uh, on like, you know, daddy daughter time is now also tied into business. So I get more time. My son. That that makes sense. I mean, my daughter is act. My 13 year old is actually my photographer and exactly. media person at a lot of my events, even at my last mastermind, I had her there. I was like, you're part of it. You're going to get paid, but you, I want you to be here and do these things. And so I, that's, that's awesome. And my, my husband now is like security. Mm. <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. He's not, but he likes to, we pulled up one time at, at the studios and he's like, I'm here with Amberly Lago. I'm security. And I, we pulled away. I'm like, who are you? Like, why are you saying that? So he's, he's a comic relief. But yeah, I love that you have your family involved. So you get to multi, what did you call it? Multi- it's multi- multiplicity. What I'm trying to do I is I'm trying, people say there's only 24 hours in a day. Yeah. If you, but, but not if you multiply it, give an example health. I had a heart aneurysm about a year and a half ago. And so, um, you know, yeah, so it's okay. You know what I mean? Like for me, I need to be working out. Mm -hmm. So I have a personal trainer, my 13 year old, I I love it. One of my favorite things to do is my 13 year old, his name is little, is Sean, the sequel, we call him the sequel. Uh, He goes with me and instead of me being separated with my personal trainer, you know, my 13 year old works out with me and my personal trainer and he loves it because he's got one-on-one time with me and it's not just us watching TV or playing video games. We are, we are got a high, high level personal trainer. We do jujitsu on Saturdays. I've been training for 30 years in martial arts, but every Saturday we, we get trained with private lessons with world champions, you know what I mean? In Philadelphia. So what I try to do is I try to get as much out of my time as possible. People are not going to believe this with my schedule. Me or my wife or both of us go to my eight-year-old's tackle football practice. He has three days a week, three hours a day, and one or both of us are there for the whole time. But what are we doing? We have our chairs. We got the laptop. We got the headset on. So when he's doing drills, we're working and we're getting, you know what I mean? That's what I mean by multiplicity. We're able yeah, to- Yeah, I, I do that too. I mean, my daughter's an equestrian and she's at the barn oh. every every day, actually. But she rides with lessons five days a week. And so I go and it's my time to kind of be in nature and breathe, but I can do some things like catch up on social media. But let me tell you, she rides by on her horse and she's looking at me to make sure that I'm watching her or I'm videoing her. So sometimes it's hard to, to do both at once, but I like to really, there's, um, 
a person I'm having on the podcast and they, they have a book called 18 summers and it's about, you really only have 18 summers with your kid before they go off to college. And so that really hit home. Like, yes, I want to spend time with my daughter at the barn. I can't always be there, but I try to be so in that present moment. It's hard because I want to have my laptop and work, but I want to watch her. So there's definitely an art to doing both for sure. But I love that you work out with your son and working out is such a huge part of your life. Um, sometimes, you know, if you're listening and you're not working out, I'm telling you, start doing it right now today, not just for your body, not just to prevent heart attacks or aneurysms, but not that, you know, that's your fault. I'm just saying that working out is what helps me mentally get through some of the toughest challenges. Mm. It helps with anxiety. It helps build confidence and it helps combat pain. So yeah, working out is huge. And I love that you're teaching your son at such a young age that that's an important part. So I have a, you know, future daughter-in-law for you over here. (laughs) <laughs> just, just ready for you. Awesome. Awesome. I want to know how long you've been, you know, with your, with your synergy, with, you've got your dealer synergy of yes. I started this light company. speed. How? So I started the company, uh, 17 and a half years ago, dealer synergy. All right. Okay. Were, did you, did you start? Okay. A lot of people might not know what light speed is. Of course I do, because I'm like, have talked to, Brad and Charlie and everybody at the team and they're awesome. Um, but tell everybody, can you tell everybody what Actually, that is? Yeah. Cause they're going to be like, what so, is that? Yeah. So for, I have a, my main company is an, it's an eight figure training company. So what I do for a living at dealer synergies, my clients are, are multi-million and multi-billion dollar car dealerships in, in four different countries, all over the United States, Canada, Russia, and Dominican Republic, actually, and also Guam, so five countries. And what we do is we do everything from, you know, sales training, objections, rebuttals, internet sales, BDC. We help car salesmen, car saleswomen, and managers do more, be more, and achieve more. So now what Lightspeed is, it's a LMS, which stands for a learning management solution. So Lightspeed is a video on demand training, tracking, testing certification platform. And about seven years ago, I've known Brad for like 15 years, but seven years ago, I signed up for Lightspeed VT. And uh, Brad, I'll tell you, I have the largest Lightspeed platform out of any vertical, bigger than Tony Robbins, Grant Cardone. Yeah, I was going to say, tell, tell, I mean, Lightspeed, it's Tony Robbins. It doesn't Dean Graziosi, hasn't he been on there too? Dan Fleischman, for sure. I know he's there. David John huge. from Shark Tank. Yeah, it's huge. So th- this is the number one online university in the world. And All yours the- is the biggest? Mine is the biggest. I've uh, Listen to this. I have six. It's called Bradley On Demand. So Bradley Man is another company that I own. So Dealer Synergy is the live training consulting. The online university for Dealer Synergy is called Bradley On Demand. So Bradley On Demand is my light speed platform. Again, BradleyOnDemand.com. And when you go there, you ready? I've got 6,500 training modules for every aspect of automotive sales, marketing, CRM, et cetera. I've invested over $6 million cash in my online library. So not the technology, Brad owns Lightspeed, just my library of 6,500 training modules that are instructionally designed, produced, 
Final Cut, that's over $6 million there. So now I have the online university. I have a company called Bradley Property Management, where I have a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio with a bunch of rental properties. I'm also an investor, a six-figure investor in Cardone Capital and Grant Cardone's real estate fund. I have a, a company called Sean V. Bradley Inc. That's what all my royalties come from my book sales and for my personal speeches that I do from the National Speakers Association. You're I have another so company. brilliant in how you organize oh, all this. Uh, I just have to say. No, I mean, lucky. I, I, they all feed in. One of my things I have is I have a company called the Internet Sales 20 Group. So I have a conference I've been doing for the last 14 years. It's a major, huge. I want to um, go. And yeah, it's January. I told you you're invited. Yeah. So we'll, let's, we'll, we'll talk about that offline. But for sure, absolutely. I'd love for you to come as my guest. You know what I mean? Or if you want to even jump on stage, whatever you want to do, you're, you're in. That's another company. My wife. She was a major recording artist, 65 million views, 11 major music videos with a Grammy nominated recording artist, platinum recording artist. So her Karina Bradley, you know, and the record label there, she owns a company called Scar Food, major product company in the beauty industry for scars. Her partner is Linda Dunn Carter is the, one of the global leaders on scar revisions and scar treatment. The African government flew her to Africa on like a UN delegation to be able to create scar schools in Africa. Can't even make this stuff up. We have this a software crazy, development. Sean. So Business. have you seen what my leg looks like? I think I need to buy what? No, you don't have to buy yeah. So scar. I need that you, scar if, stuff. I mean, well, I'll, yeah, I, I definitely, it really works. It's, it, I don't know anything about beauty industry stuff, but like, it, it, it's crazy how much her business is just picked up and it's completely well, online. What, for, okay. I just want to get clear on this and I'll have to talk to your wife about this. Is it for, it's in the beauty industry, but is it for scars like acne uh, scars? Yes. So, everything. So, and this is crazy. This is my, I don't even do this all the time, but I'll explain to you. So scar food, there's two different things going on. Scar food is the, is the product line for lotions, creams that are organic and vegan based to, to help out with stretch marks, acne, scars, burns, cuts, all it's, it's scar treatment stuff, real stuff. But her partner, her name is Linda Dunn Carter. She invented a technique called the DC method, the Dunn Carter method, where she uses a tattoo gun without ink to rescar and reheal and heal it the right way. So my wife is not part of her scar business. She's part of the scar product line, the creams, lotions to heal scars. So there's two different levels to this. So I don't know your scar level, but there might, you know, it might be, uh, you're, well, you could it, show me a picture. A and I have yes. So again, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not sure what they can oh, do. I don't with know that. what they can there's, do for that. I don't know what, yeah. what, what they can do for this. Like, I mean, I'm scarred. Actually, I'm scarred from the hip down and my, uh, skin graft scars on my upper thigh. My plastic surgeon who had to take the skin from my upper thigh and put it on my lower leg said it's the best skin graft recovery he's ever seen. So I'm, I'm proud of that. And I've just kind of learned to, to accept all Amberly, my scars. Amberly talk to my wife, because I'm telling you, they have crazy stuff that they that they see and and it actually works but i, I don't want to speak what i don't know what, what i'm talking about yeah so but i just think it's so interesting how you meet people and i had no idea about that with your wife and here we are i'm like oh that's another reason we met i need to talk to you to your wife about this that's amazing i mean you have yeah. how many businesses in total do you run 11 
11 companies and uh, three of them are in the multi-million dollar category. One is deep eight figures and the other ones are like, you know, either in the million dollar or they're getting there. So that is incredible. Well, I want to ask you about your book really quick because you have a book and you help people become more successful. I only knew you had one book though. You have how many that's books? One that's published right now. So that's okay. it. So Google app, that's, that's the one with the, the, that looks like Google. So I wrote, I'm signed to Wiley publishing. So it's Wiley it's, is I, awesome. I Thank you. Yeah. I did a book tour with New York city, LA, all over the place. They had the book and the cover there and it was all over the place. Congratulations. So thank you. The book is called Win the Game of Googleopoly. It is a book on, and here's a quick concept. You can't win the game of Monopoly with just Boardwalk or Park Place, and damn sure not with like Baltic or Mediterranean. You need to get as much of Monopoly real estate. So same thing with your business. If you just show up once on the search engine, that's not enough. You, the goal, in my opinion, is to show up numerous times in the top 10 listing. Why? Because only 5% of people go to page two. So if you think about it, if you could get more of the Google real estate, you're going to have much higher probability of engagement and conversion. So I, the whole book is about how to crush Google and be able, it doesn't matter what business you're in, product, service, comedian, recording artist, whatever it is that you have, you either need to build an audience, a fan base or a prospect list. And to do that, 99% of uh, transactions start on search engines. So again, and what's the a, first like, thing people do? They go and Google something. Hundred percent. So this is a Google domination uh, book. We took how I got how I got signed to this is that I took an un, un, an a, a, you know an undiscovered recording artist, never in a recording studio, and within three years she had sixty five million views, performed in front of millions and millions of people on you know serious satellite Eminem's radio station. She's got you know uh, 11 major music videos with these major people. And we did that all with not only her talent, but with the digital marketing and Googleopoly strategy. I, I work with major label recording artists. I work with professional athletes from the UFC and the NFL. So that's a small piece of my business, but I'm an advanced digital marketer. So that's the book that's out and published. I'm in the process because of my my case in the situation, writing a book about my life, and that's almost done, and that should be out by you know like early 2022. That's, that's what Mike amazing. Zeller's flying in paid for. Yes. So if I can, oh. can I talk about the the, the show real quick? Yeah, we, I want to hear about the show. Tell us about the show. The first show is the radio show, the one that I'm going to be interviewing you on uh, after Mike leaves on on Thursday. So the I'm uh, Friday. So the radio show is called Against All Odds. And iHeartRadio has been a sponsor of mine for the automotive industry for years for my conference. I have the largest Facebook group and the number one podcast in the entire automotive industry. So it's a niche. And so because it's That's so, so important to be in a niche and you've oh nailed God. it. It really, yeah, I own the automotive sales space, right? Like legitimately, like I'm one of the major, major influencers. So iHeartRadio came to me and said, my gosh, you're crushing this on a niche level, why don't you do this on the out level? Now, Grant Cardone has been telling me to evolve out of automotive. Brad Lee's been telling me to evolve out of automotive. iHeart's telling me out of this. So they pitched me, you know, starting a radio show with them. So at first, um, for the, like we started January, 2021, you know, was our, our first, you know, going through and it was nationally syndicated in Los Angeles, the number one radio market in the, in the country, Los Angeles. It was in Rochester, New York. It was in Atlanta, Washington, D.C., and um, Cleveland, Ohio. Wow. Now, I, I, 
I was running it and we were having Saturday and Sunday was our show. We were having about 1.3 million Americans tuning in on a weekly basis to my show for the first six months. And the beginning of the third quarter in July, I dropped down to only one market because I have all this TV show stuff, which I'm explaining in a second. So now uh, we still have the radio show, but it is only for 104.7 FM in Washington, D.C. So okay, and what is I, your intention for the show? Tell people what they're going to get when they listen yeah, to so it. So the show is, 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 I'm really proud of it. It's kind of like what we're doing right here. I'm interviewing, like, but reverse, I'm interviewing people that have an amazing story amazing superpower that can articulate that. So I've interviewed people like Grant Cardone, Tim Story, you know, Forbes Riley. I had multiple NFL Super Bowl, you know, people and NBA all-stars and, you know, uh, recording artists. I have all in every category of amazingness. I talk to these people and I find out how did they do it, one, and then I basically have them reverse engineer some tips. The idea, the name of it is against all odds. Most people like your point that you said earlier in this interview is they don't execute. And some of it is they don't feel worthy Emily, they, they don't think that, they, that that success should be for them. Either they believe that internally or everybody around them is saying, oh, you're crazy, you're wasting time, that's never gonna work, it's never gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Or they just don't- I think don't fear holds people back too. Fear of rejection, yeah, of fear of failing, yeah. fear of, and if we can just learn to reframe fear to learning and growing, I think it really helps. I think, I think being rejected so many times as a professional dancer, when I was in the dance industry, I mean, I had a successful career, but there were a lot of no's and a lot of rejections. It really helps me. It just lets you look at failure or rejection as redirection and, and, and learning and growing and how you can get better. But a lot of people don't have that. They haven't and fear holds them back. And so I love that you are sharing these people. And I love Tim's story. Well, I love Forbes and Mm -hmm. Grant is amazing. So y'all, his show is amazing. I'm honored to be on. Thank you so much. But yeah, I said, I can't wait to interview, especially all the stuff that I learned about like the dancing and and I I cannot wait to interview you in, in a couple of days. And so I'm going to steal from Brad Lee, and, and I don't think he's going to mind unless I give him credit. Brad has this statement that I love. If you ask what Brad does, Brad says with light speed, he gets the information from the people that have it to the people that need it. And that's and I, that's what I really believe my show is about, is I want to be able to get the information from the people that have it to the people that need it. And that's what, the con- that's what it is. It's a conduit to be able to bridge those, those two entities. Mm, I love that. You're so much about giving back and, and being successful, but sharing your success with others so they can be successful too. And I think that's so much a part of, you know, the ripple effect of uh, your heart, your gratitude, your hard work, and the blessings that you've experienced, you continue to bless other people. Um, and when can people see this TV show, Superstar? Like, okay. this is yeah. amazing. Hopefully everybody's still with us because it was a long interview, you know, if they heard this, but uh, again, we haven't mentioned it. So it is on Vice TV. Uh, the name of the show is I Was a Teenage Felon. And it might sound like a superficial title, but I'm gonna tell you, because when I first heard of the show, I was like, it's gonna be cheesy. It's really not. Vice is an amazing, amazing network. It's the fastest growing network on the planet right now. And they're a big news agency and they believe in, in prison reform and they believe in redemption, they believe in evolution. The reason why it shows to do the show, because it wasn't just glorifying 
the, this crazy case and all the stuff that's there, they're big on second chances and showing how people could go from some severe craziness to what I'm doing now. And so the show airs every Monday at 10 p.m. on Vice TV. I mean, it's the, directly, but it's on all cable stations, whether it's Comcast, Xfinity, it's you know Direct, it's Disc, or it's Verizon Fios, you can watch it there. And it's on all the streaming platforms from Amazon Prime, Apple TV, or Hulu. And what's really kind of cool about this is that it's season two right now. So the show was a hit in season one, and um, matter of fact, this past Monday was just episode three. So we're in season two, episode three. My episode is called King of Clubs. I'm episode 10, which is the season finale. So I am extremely honored. Not only am I on this amazing show, but I'm actually the entire season finale. And wow. I want to invite you, Amber. Here's a cool thing. I don't know what you're doing on November 22nd, but November 22nd is going to be when their Vice is going to air my episode, the season finale, live to the world. What I'm doing in Philadelphia is I have a major Hollywood premiere. I have a red carpet premiere. We booked the historic Ritz Theater and I have some special guest celebrities going to be there. But one of the people is going to be, you know, the, the star of season one. His name's Seth Ferrante. Uh -huh. And Seth went on to you ready for this and you should have him on your show by the way seth did 21 straight years in prison when he was in prison he got his associates his bachelor's his master's degree wrote eight books came home and became the writer producer of a netflix top 10 movie called white boy about white boy rick so he's going to be wow. at my premiere too so i would love it i don't know what you're doing on november 22nd you know, i'm old school i have my calendar my paper calendar out and i'm available november 22nd so wherever you're going to be, I would love to go. And I'm going to send you the invite. I'm dead. It's a private event. We're going to probably have about 100, 150 you know, people flying in from all over the country, but it's going to be a red carpet premiere for, for this season finale. And uh, I would be honored for you and your husband to come and just be our guest and just have some fun. So it's going to be the, the, the event is 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Because from 10 to 11, we're watching the episode live in the theater. But from 9 to 10, it's going to be pictures and, you know, private party, yada, 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 a lot of fun. So I'll send you the invite, but I would love if you guys were able to come. Oh, my gosh, that would be so amazing. Thank you so much. And I just want to ask one more question. I know we've gone over and I appreciate you taking the time to do this. One more question. Is there something that you could tell people maybe that you've done to heal that trauma from the abuse when you were younger, how did you move through that? Is there something that's maybe somebody who is in a really bad situation? Cause you've done all these amazing things and you, you know, you have a successful business and a beautiful marriage, but how did you heal that deep, deep hurt? I got to tell you, I, you know, I, I wasn't prepared for that question, but I think it's it's a beautiful question and people don't really ask me that, you know? And so I wanna just first be very transparent and say that I'm still healing. Um, you know, I didn't talk to my mother and my father for many, many, many years. I just started talking to my father recently, um, like in the last like six months or so. And, you know, me and my mother started to re-communicate a couple years ago now, but still we lost many, many, many years. So I wanna just say that, um, transparency. I'm still a work in progress. I, I actually uh, speak to somebody now. We know from first, I'm 45 years old. And for probably the last couple of months, I, because of the pandemic, I'm just doing Zooms with a, with a, like a therapist and stuff like Thank that. You. But it kind of actually helps me to kind of talk to somebody. And, and, and I just want to just let people know that even, the, and I'm going to answer your question, but in a different way. 
I still, not only am I trying to get through the trauma as a child, I also have things happen to me now. I mentioned that my, my ex-wife, it, it passed away. Um, it wasn't of natural causes. Um, about five years ago, the, the mother of my daughter and my, my ex-wife, she committed suicide. And so I bring this up because what people need to understand is that money doesn't mean happiness. Money doesn't mean being safe. Success doesn't mean safe. So yes, I have evolved from being in the projects and the ghettos and prison and a convict and all that stuff to wealth and prosperity. But even at that level, I experience pain, suffering, disappointment, you know, fear, anxiety. And so I want people to understand, don't chase money or success. That's why I mentioned the seven habits of highly effective people. Chase effectiveness because that's what's going to get you through through everything. Now, what would I say? You have to be ready because my whole life, you know, people are trying to shove me in, in, in therapy or pills or institutions and stuff, and I just wasn't ready. As I got older, you know, you hear this, and I don't want to mean disrespect because I don't know if this is what you say to people, but I, I, so, certain phrases are, are worn out on Clubhouse and all over, find your why. You know what I mean? But I really believe that statement is if your why isn't strong enough to get better or get to get healing, then it's never going to happen. You're either going to go through the superficial motions and never get the value, or you're never even going to start. So for me, I look at my, I look at my kids and I look at my wife and I just can't fathom them ever going through a fraction of a fraction of the the carnage that I went through. Mm -hmm. And so they're my why. And I'm far from being a, a perfect father or husband, guys. I want to be clear about that. I'm so far from that. You know, I just had a horrible day the other day, you know, with my wife and my daughter. You know what I mean? Like, I felt like they hated me. You know what I mean? And, you know, it was so I want people to understand, like, I'm a real person. You know, like, success doesn't take that away. But what why I try so hard now is because I want my kids to not have trauma and stress and this and that. I, I want to be able to stop the, the cycle because so many times what I hear and what I see is that we perpetuate a cycle of abuse. Again, I just want, I don't want to say anything in a bad way. This whole R. Kelly thing, I am not giving this guy a pass at all. He deserves to be locked up for if he did everything that he did. But the man was abused and molested and all this other stuff. My point being is that, unfortunately, when people are abused or tortured or put in a certain situation, they tend to perpetuate that negativity and that chaos. So if you want to stop the cycle of craziness, abuse, violence, or non-productiveness, you have to have a why that's really important. And then work the steps, mate. You ever watch Finding Nemo? You know what I mean? The little shark or whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know, uh, work the steps. You've got to work the steps. You've got to turn around and first have the conscious decision. I want to get help. I want to stop the pain. I want to stop the hurt. Okay, how am I going to do that? And you have to lay out a plan, whether it's therapy, whether it's 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 going to church, whether it's meditating, whatever it is for you, what your plan is, work your plan. And at first, it's going to feel awkward at first. It's going to be, why am oh, I doing this? It's going to suck at first. I'm just yes, going to say absolutely. it sucks. Yes, yes. But can I tell you a little tidbit here? Dr. Covey said from the seven habits of high-effective people, it takes six weeks, not 72 hours, not, not six days. It takes six weeks to make or break a habit. So I encourage everybody that's going through something difficult to just create, don't worry about next year or even next like two months or 90 days out. Just come up with a six week commitment for, for healing, however that is for you. And then I promise you 
you know, that the day two, day three, like you just said, is going to suck or why am I wasting my time? Why am I doing this? But once you get to the sixth week that you've just completed, it's going to become more of a habit and more of a, a blessing than it is a burden. I hope that answer that answer your question. Yeah. And I really appreciate your transparency and also your humility. It's really beautiful because as, as much success as you've achieved, you're like, I'm still a work in progress. We all are. Oh my God, I am. We, we all yeah. are. And so I just appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your experience, your strength and your hope. Um, so thank you. Tell everybody the best place if they want to go grab your book, listen to your show, watch your TV show. If they want to come to your event, your red carpet event, well, I'm coming to the red carpet event. Right. They want to check out your, your, your program of dealer synergy. Oh my goodness. I think that would I be think, awesome. I appreciate it. I think the best thing and easiest thing, cause there's so much going on is your, any social platform. It's Sean V Bradley. I use the V and it's S E A N. So Facebook at Sean V Bradley, Instagram at Sean V Bradley, YouTube at Sean V Bradley TV. You know what I mean? And so I, I have a tremendous amount of content on there, but we would be here for another half an hour if I light out all the things. So they could just, whatever your favorite social platform is, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or YouTube, just search for Sean V Bradley and you're going to find a plethora of information and content. If I can have just one thing I want to say, which we didn't talk about, and I think it's very important in my heart, is that me and my wife started a foundation called Help Because You Can. So we literally own helpbecauseyoucan.com and we've donated you know, over a million dollars plus to about 47 different charities. And my thing is this, it's part of our social responsibility statement for me and my wife is that I, I firmly believe that if you are in a position to help, it, it is your responsibility to help. Why? Because you can. And if people have that paradigm that, you know what, I'm in a position and help doesn't just mean financial, it could be emotional, it could be, you know, volunteering, like, you know, time, it could be money, it could be whatever you can. But if you are in a position to help somebody else that needs help, you should not just make it a, a, a possibility, you should make it, you know, part of your personal mission because you can. So I just wanted to say that, that that's what really drives me and my wife. My wife was homeless as a kid. She was a single mom at 17 years old, single parent at 17 years old, you know, uh, again, and she's self-made as well. So how do you take a kid from the Brooklyn and Queens, ex-drug dealer, ex-convict, ex-gang member, you take a, a you know a minority female Latina, right, Puerto Rican, who was homeless for six months as a kid because her dad was incarcerated. She was pregnant at seven, at sixteen years old, had a baby at seventeen. And how, when you combine them, best-selling author, radio show host, TV show star, she's a major recording artist, all that other stuff. It didn't happen by accident. I want to leave this message to your audience: is that we are in an amazing opportunity. We could create the destiny that we want. It starts first, like Covey says, with what you could visualize. What you can visualize, you have a higher probability of it materializing. Begin with the end result in mind. If you want to, if you don't want to work at a dead end job, you don't want to be miserable, you don't want to be broke, you don't want to have bills, you don't want to have this, you don't have that. Fine. Then articulate that. Write that down. Blue. Begin with the end result in mind. What is your life you want? What is the ideal spouse? What is the ideal career? What is the ideal income? What is that? Write it down and then figure out how to reverse engineer, how to acquire those things. If you put in the effort, like you said before, if you just get off your ass and not be lazy and lethargic and you put the effort in 
and you don't deviate from your path and be distracted by shiny objects, you will be able to be successful. All of us are. Brad Lee, all these people, Grant Cardone was a, was a drug addict, you know what I mean? And now he's the undercover billionaire. Brad Lee, you know what I mean, was broke and now he's gonna be a billionaire soon too. Mm-hmm. How? Because we all had the vision and we all executed on that vision. So I hope that helps somebody and, and it's an honor to be on your show and I appreciate you taking the time to, to get to know me a little bit more. Oh my gosh, you're amazing. Thank you so much. I can't wait till this comes out and I can't wait to see you in person soon. Thank you so much for being on and um, you guys, thank you. Take a screenshot of your favorite part and share it on Instagram. You can tag me at Amberly Lago Motivation. Tag Sean at Sean V. Bradley, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for joining us this week on True Grit and Grace podcast. If you like it, please rate it or share it with your friends. That would help too. If you're not yet on the newsletter list, come over to AmberlyLago.com and jump on it. While you're there, you can grab a free downloadable gratitude journal and you might just want to check out my book or even check out my monthly motivational membership. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next week.